So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. I hope you're safe and healthy and that your business is performing well as we start to accelerate out of the pandemic. I've been running some webinars recently for global teams, and I know that some of our listeners in Australia and New Zealand especially are back in lockdown. So I know how frustrating that is, and I really hope you guys are staying safe. Thanks to everyone that shared links to the show in recent weeks. You're really spreading the word brilliantly, and it is remarkable that we're able to reach people as far afield as Guatemala, Sudan, and even the Faroe Islands. So if you're listening in today, from those locations and anywhere around the world. I hope you're doing well. Thanks to everyone also that's left a five-star rating and review. This really helps us to signpost the show to people that are scrolling through the endless list of podcast possibilities. And we're currently at number six in the Apple chart for the UK in the management section. So that's an absolutely brilliant achievement up against some of those massive organisations. So thank you for your help. And to Tommy C15, your five star review said that the show's helping you to stay positive and focused, especially on the golf course. So you're going to love today's show as it features one of the most respected figures on the golfing circuit. Let's hear a sample of what's to come. What was important for me was that I approached the captaincy in a way that was aligned with my personality and what my beliefs were. Preparation is key um, for anything, whether it be a big business meeting, whether it be golf. And the more I play the game and the more I, I, I've gone through experiences in golf, the more I realise so much of it is in the prep. I didn't see my job as going up to players during round, being visual and saying, well done, keep going. Players don't need that. They're out there with their caddies, with their partner. They got a vice captain following the game. They're secure. They don't need the validation of the captain in my view. But what they did need was a strategy going forward. My view on on extreme talent um, who don't play by the rules is try to find a common ground. I had a romantic idea that in 20 years time, 30 years time, when we're all finished our careers and we're old and grey, not that I'm not grey now, walking into a pub and feeling a bonding with somebody that we shared experience in Glen Eagles with. That's my romantic idea of what we wanted to create. So today's special guest grew up in the close-knit community of Donegal in Northwest Ireland and played loads of sport at school, especially Gaelic football. But a serious knee injury sadly cut his 
career short, and he moved over into golf. Being part of these competitive teams alongside a trusted band of brothers definitely left its mark, and he carried his team philosophy into his professional career. After achieving over 500 European tour appearances and sinking the final putt in the 2002 Ryder Cup, he was made vice-captain in 2010 and 2012 before realising his dream of becoming the Ryder Cup captain of the European team in 2014. It is, of course, Paul McGinley, and this would be the challenge of a lifetime, and he need to ensure four key pillars of success. Firstly, getting the best out of each of the different individuals. Secondly, how could he build a team culture and chemistry between all these diverse personalities and preferences? Thirdly, he had to build a strategy using data, which not only analysed this incredible Glen Eagles course, but also predicted how the various pairs might play in those conditions. And fourthly, he needed to ensure that the team could perform brilliantly under pressure against their arch rivals, the USA. One of the biggest questions in leadership is whether it's natural or learnt. I went to see Paul at his home to find out more about his views and strategies as a leader. If you want to watch his whole interview in our members club, you'll see that Paul is in his favourite armchair with a very special golden trophy at his side. I've worked with Paul on a couple of projects and found him incredibly humble and professional and his interview provides so much golden insight for leaders in the corporate world. So are leaders born or made? I'm sure it's a blend of the two but as Paul told me his early coaches and teachers definitely saw leadership skills in him at an early age. Well I've always felt I evolved towards leadership, but looking back, and my mom and dad are quick to remind me, I was captain of the hurling and football teams as I grew up in, in school back in Ireland from, a, from an age of 8, 9, 10, 11 onwards. Um, so I guess, you know, the teachers of school saw something in me to be that. Um, I've always enjoyed strategy. Um, I've always enjoyed um, being part of a team. And I've always enjoyed um, kind of directing the team. Um, and then when I turned professional uh, playing golf, and, and it's such an individual sport, golf, as we all know, um, kind of parked it to one side. And then as I uh, became part of teams, Ryder Cup teams and Seve Trophy teams and, and, uh, and Royal Trophy teams playing against Asia, um, those feelings and those juices started to flow again about being part of something big. Um, and it was only then, after my first real Ryder Cup appearance in 2002, that uh, I remember looking at Sam Torrance and thinking, wow, one day I'd love to do what he's doing. So maybe it was Paul's calm, methodical way that he went about his business that inspired those around him. Maybe he was a role model for the way he performed under pressure or played selflessly as part of a wider team. There were definite clues and character traits emerging at an early age that would become central to his success in later life. So even as a youngster, it sounds like Paul was showing professional tendencies, but this would become a signature strength for him as a professional golfer. It's often said that our confidence comes from our preparedness, and if we've left no stone unturned in our preparation, then we're definitely ready to deliver when the pressure comes on. 
preparation is key um, for anything, whether it be a big business meeting, whether it be golf. And uh, the more I play the game and the more I, I, I've gone through experiences in golf, the more I realize so much of it is in the prep. Um, and it's the technical prep as well as the mental prep. Uh, and looking at the weather forecast, anticipating pin positions, um, anticipating where your swing is, what your tendencies are at that moment in time, how does your body feel, uh, preparing properly in the morning before you go out, having a clear mindset, giving yourself plenty of time, having proper fruit in the bag and food in the bag that you may need that will apply to you on the way around. And, and the more preparation you have, um, the more your energy is not eaten up while you're out on the golf course, uh, thinking about these things and you can get really stuck in to the competition and the focus you need on every shot. What I love about this insight is Paul's disciplined preparation in the lead up to tournaments and it brought him freedom on the course. He considered all the elements to the extent that he'd got a variety of game plans, strategies and even snacks to be on hand whenever he needed them. Preparation can often seem boring planning meals, practicing what-if scenarios. But actually, it's these moments of discipline when some people could cut corners, and that's where the champions excel. The more prepared for different scenarios they are, the more confident and at ease they feel. As their peers flap around emotionally wondering what to do next, they can select the game plan they'd pre-prepared in their build-up. As well as this preparation, I wanted to hear how Paul would define his leadership style and the factors that he saw as being pivotal to his success. I think you've got to be a leader that um, corresponds to who you are as an individual. Uh, I am not a shouting, roaring kind of a guy. Um, I'm more maybe of a deep thinker and I'm more of a communications guy, uh, creating a vibe in the team room. Um, and as a result, I didn't want to make it about me because in life, I don't really see things about me. Uh, I see things in a, in a wider perspective because that's integrally who I am. Now, not everybody is the same. Other leaders have been very successful in a very opposite way that I do. So what was important for me was that I approached the captaincy in a way that was aligned with my personality and what my beliefs were. Uh, integrity is something that's essential in any leader. The one thing I will never do is lie. There might be a version of the truth I will give, a position that I will give, um, and a line that I will take, but I'll believe in that line. I'm not, not believing in it. And it's very important as a, as a leader that you have that integrity. Because the players see through you, or the businessmen see through you. And if they know you as an individual, and hear you saying something that doesn't line up, that they know you to be, now you've lost the respect. Once you've lost the respect, you've lost the buy-in. Once you've lost the buy-in, you've lost the confidence. Once you've lost the confidence, you're on the downward spiral. So always maintaining a high level of integrity and always telling the truth. A leader's integrity really um, shines through, through his communication, through his use of words. If I would say to an individual, you're definitely playing in the afternoon, um, get ready to play in the afternoon. And then for some reason, I don't play him in the afternoon. I've lost his confidence and I've lost everybody who he will have told that he was playing in the afternoon because I've changed my mind. So the communication with that individual would be, there's a great chance of playing in the afternoon. I'm never going to say 100% because things can change as we know, things are volatile. But never corner yourself as an individual with the words that you use. So communication is vital. 
I think there are three key insights here. We definitely need self-awareness as a foundation. And there's no point trying to act like somebody else, firstly, because it'd be exhausting to act in a way that doesn't come naturally to us. And secondly, because people will see straight through that and will lose trust. Rather be an imperfect version of yourself rather than trying to be a plastic or perfect copy of somebody else. Another key trait of great leaders is this consistency as well that Paul's talking about. And it's much easier to do that if you're following your own natural style and instinct rather than trying to replicate what other people might do. Paul's ability to stay close to his strong moral compass kept that consistency and as a result his team knew who and what they were following. They may not always like it but they definitely would be able to predict and respect his approach and that breeds that consistency and trust that we definitely need in a volatile sport or business context. The other key thing that I took from his insight was that maybe somebody who prepares as methodically as him may have been let down when somebody said that plan A is definitely happening. In elite sport and business at the moment, there's so many variables changing that leaders need to balance this readiness with that ability to make last minute adjustments. So it's far better to build in a case of flexibility than always giving people concrete plans and then changing your mind because that can break the trust. Changing your mind isn't the issue here. That's all part of that agility we need to exploit the conditions as they emerge. It's what we've told our teams. Over time, if we keep promising X and then at the last minute changing to Y, then we'll lose that credibility and people will commit less over time, giving us weaker performance. The combination of Paul's personal integrity and his methodical preparation would be central to his leadership success in the 2014 Ryder Cup. With probably around 20 players and support staff to manage amid the media frenzy, Paul's communication to every member of the group and as a whole would be the key balance. There's always difficult situations and different commu difficult communication that has to happen within a team environment. Um, the key for me in a leader um, for those conversations is to be prepared, anticipate. If you know the person, the individual you're dealing with, and you know his tendencies, psychologically you know where he's going to go, you know his insecurities. Um, and if you can type, tap into those security, insecurities and give him a platform to then move forward from, that's the key to the communication. So anticipating that individual and not isolating them is the key. So that's why I was very much of the opinion that 95% of my communication with all the players at the Ryder Cup was done on a one-to-one -one basis. I never singled out any particular individual at any of the team meetings, whether it be good or bad. Because if it's good, the other 11 guys are thinking, why is he not mentioning me? And if it's bad, you're isolating that individual. There's no win. So for me, the team meetings are about generic things that we're doing as a team, but all the real nitty gritty of getting people on side is done on a one-to-one -one basis. One of the things that, that I like to do is every time I'd have a chat with a player, I'd write it in my notes, whether it be on my, on my phone or whether, and, and then put it in my notes at night, but I would have a consistent file on each player of what I said to them. So before I would meet them or have an important meeting with them, 
um, that I want to get a point across, I would look back through my history of communication uh, with that particular player and think, okay, I said this, 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 this is where we want, this is what he was happy with, now you have a basis going forward. So you're not contradicting that you may have said something to him before. Because when you're dealing with a huge amount of people, it's easy to forget what you may have said to somebody. So being very clear uh, and consistent uh, in the manner of communication to each individual is vital. I found that really interesting that 95% of his communications were done on a one-to-one -one level. So the team meetings were short and sharp and to the point he talks about them not going on beyond 30 minutes, which I think is something that business could learn brilliantly from. But he didn't praise or critique individuals in the team meetings. It was all about creating that shared understanding of what the strategy was going to be for the days ahead. And then he'd pick up the one-to-one -one chats for more greater personal detail. I really also like that simple strategy that Paul used to write notes with each of the conversations as a bit of a review for himself. You can imagine how much chaos was going on, studying the weather, picking up the news feeds. There'd be rumours about the opposition and, you know, what was going on on the course. And he'd need to ground himself and bring him back to those critical touch points with each of the individual players. Even though those chats may well have been brief, the messaging needed to be very precise and consistent and tailored. So these personal notes that he reflected on gave him, allowed him to keep track of where he was from day to day. I wonder how your organisation has handled feedback and one-to-one -one time over the last 12 to 18 months. Perhaps you've been working from home and that's provided more of a chance to have one-to-one -one Zoom calls without the office overhearing. Or maybe these all-important one-to-one chats have dropped away because they used to happen at the canteen or in the lift up to your next meeting. Either way, this balance of team and one-to-one conversations is really really critical and Paul's insight teaches us the importance of balancing this team environment where we create this shared mental model and reinforce the culture that we want in our team meetings and the need to inspire and challenge individuals on a one-to-one -one basis more privately as well that's the winning formula. One of the communication challenges that any leader faces is around the ability to delegate it's great to feel like you're the most important figure for the team in terms of advice or inspiration or providing those micro adjustments. But the problem is that we can only be in one place at any one time. And if we zoom in far too close, we lose that strategic perspective, which is critical to planning ahead and staying agile. Again, Paul found a way to tackle this and challenge conventional wisdom by creating a new role of an extra vice captain, which gave every member of the team support while he looked ahead at what was coming next. One of the things that's uh, very important in a, uh, that makes a Ryder Cup very unique compared to other sports, if you see a soccer manager or a rugby coach, they're on the sideline and they got all their team around them and they're all watching the one arena and everything is happening in the one arena. Not the case in the Ryder Cup. Your four matches going on at the same time the first two days. Captain can't be watching everything. So the vice captains um, are a very underrated um, and underplayed role in the Ryder Cup. Um, I realised that in my vice captaincy roles. Um, I realised that um, from watching Ryder Cups in the past. And as a result, I choose very, very carefully 
um, people that I could really trust, people that were going to give me exactly what was happening and could read a game, read individuals, give me that information back so that then I could make a decision going forward. In the Ryder Cup, I saw three lines of attack. First line were the players and caddies. They were in the front line. Second line were the vice captains. One vice captain following each game. And the fifth vice captain, which was a new thing, no, nobody had used it before. The reason for the fifth vice captain was there's always four players sitting back in the clubhouse in the first two days, in the four sessions. And I wanted one designated vice captain to look after those four, prepare them for the next wave of attack. And then I saw myself as a third line of attack. So my role, I felt, is that once one roll of the dice was underway and the players were out there performing, I didn't see my job as going up to players um, during round, being visual and saying, well done, keep going. Players don't need that. They're out there with their caddies, with their partner. They've got a vice captain following the game. They're secure. They don't need the validation of the captain, in my view. But what they did need was a strategy going forward. So as one roll of dice was underway, I was preparing the next wave of attack. And I was doing that through my communication with each individual vice captain, the four on the course and the fifth uh, who was looking after the four players not there. The fifth uh, who was looking after the four players not there. So this is a great analogy for business. We may have different departments, different projects and different teams. You may even have different international offices and we can't be shouting and waving our arms like a football manager in every location. So this ability to empower trusted advisors and leaders below us to maintain the pace and direction and focus of the teams is absolutely crucial. Paul's fifth vice captain was playing a really important role too and it meant that even those that weren't on the course felt connected to the plan as the tournament progressed wave after wave. This strategy ensured that everyone knew their role as the tournament unfolded, but don't think for a minute that high-performing teams have perfect, cuddly relationships. With so much at stake, emotions are high, and everyone selfishly wants to be the star. So I was really interested in digging a little bit deeper with Paul to see how he managed some of these big characters and big moments in the build-up to their trophy win. My view on, on extreme talent um, who don't play by the rules is try to find a common ground. I believe there's always a common ground. I believe inherently um, people who are successful of sport um, want to continue to be successful. Um, and if you tie into their mindset, if they are a particularly strong individual and don't want to be part of a team, you can still get into their mindset by saying, and finding a reason why it's good for them to do what they are doing. There's a common ground, it's knowing the player, it's getting into his mind and giving him reasons why it's important that for him that he does that. Not for me, not for the team, for him. Why it's important for his career, why it's important for his view in the public and because everybody has things um, that they're trying to achieve. Um, and it's tapping into his mindset, his particular mindset, getting on side with him giving him grounds for him to go forward and why he should buy into the team ethic. That's where I believe the secret lies. Communication. Because if a player was forced to do something, you've lost that player. Trying to force them to do something against their own will that they believe is wrong, mentally you've put them at a big disadvantage. And potentially they're going to come into the team and infiltrate with their mindset a team, a team ethos. And now all of a sudden you've got the whole team dynamic going down because one player is unhappy. So it's very important to 
to bring everybody along um, in their own individual ways. No matter what issues uh, we faced, and we faced a number in Glen Eagles, a lot of them the public don't know about, we faced a number of issues that came up, um, not just in Glen Eagles, in, in, in the two years preceding that, um, just me as captain um, putting things in place and also my relations with the players, and there were a number of things that came up um, that we had to deal with. And the way we dealt with it was we found a common ground. Um, we didn't certainly go in my way, and we didn't certainly go in the players' way. I said, okay, let's sit down here, let's find a common ground where everybody's going to be happy here. Once we reach that common ground, then we move forward. There are a couple of clever strategies here for leaders to consider. The first is taking it away from being a personal conflict between Paul and the other individual. Paul didn't enter an ego battle. He used the shared goal of the team as the central theme in the debate. This is not about what you want or what I want. It's about what the team needs of us. We all have to compromise our own personal interests for that. This is far less confrontational and feels like less of a battle that one of them's going to win and one of them's going to lose. In this model, they both have to compromise a little bit and align for the team. The second element is the way Paul steered the conversation towards the players' own aspirations. Maybe they wanted to be a future captain of the Ryder Cup team. Maybe they wanted more fame and fortune or wanted to be given a, a leading role. Paul's understanding of each player's psyche and motivations allowed him to pull the players towards their own goals rather than push them into his idea. This combination was a winning formula in terms of dealing with the mechanics of the big personalities that were losing alignment, but creating an emotional connection to the team and its core purpose would be the oil that would really get the machine spinning. I just wanted to take a moment to give you the special offer code to join our members community. Over the last decade, we've been researching the attributes of the most successful performers and leaders, and we've curated these video insights into a proven system of over 800 success strategies. When you join as a member, I'll send through weekly video coaching strategies to keep your mindset and leadership sharp, and you'll have access to a world-class library of tools for your career and your team success. Thousands of execs and entrepreneurs around the world have been inspired by our content. So visit sportingedge.com and go to the membership option and use the podcast 100 code in the discount box to get your first month for free. There's absolutely no catch and you can cancel your membership at any time. So you won't need to spend hours trawling through YouTube for inspirational videos We've curated the best strategies and you'll find them in seconds. You'll even be able to hear Paul talk about what was going through his mind when he sunk that 2002 Ryder Cup winning putt. So come to sportingedge.com, look for the membership and use that podcast 100 code to claim your free month. The Ryder Cup really is a unique challenge in sport. It isn't like Liverpool preparing for a new season and then staying together with the same squad for 30 odd weeks. The Ryder Cup is a rapidly assembled and short-lived team. In this challenge, every two years, a group of alpha individuals who normally compete head-to-head -head against each other have to play nicely together as a team. Even when Tiger Woods was at his pomp winning every individual trophy, it didn't mean that America won the Ryder Cup. Teamwork calls on very, very different skills, 
and Paul needed some powerful anchors to galvanise this group of diverse individuals together at an emotional level, as he now explains. He takes us inside the culture that he created by blending iconic images, storytelling and belonging. And overall, this foundation of trust is what brought the team together. Building trust within a team uh, very much comes from the leader. Um, treating everybody as individuals, learning their background, finding out their background, and be respectful of their background, all helps um, when you then have to communicate with those individuals. Um, being respectful for the history of the company or the history of the football club or history of the Ryder Cup team, whatever it may be, I believe is very important um, to extending a legacy. Um, creating something to aspire to as a team uh, along the lines of where the company or where the, the team has come from to me is very important. So there's continuity in a path. The players or the businessmen are part of something much bigger than just being successful. The first thing the players saw when they walked into the um, area where the team were, were the rooms we were going to use, um, was uh, a roll of honour on the wall of every player that ever played uh, Ryder Cup for Britain and Ireland and Europe. And I wanted them to feel that history, to feel part of that history, um, and that to identify with that history. Um, and I had a romantic idea that in 20 years' time, uh, 30 years' time, when we're all finished our careers and we're old and grey, um, not that I'm not grey now, uh, walking into a pub and feeling a bonding with somebody that we shared experience uh, in Glen Eagles with. That's my romantic idea of what we wanted to create. Something very bonding um, between all the players that would last a lifetime. Paul paints a great picture there and he's encapsulated that intangible pride that we all feel from sacrificing for something bigger than ourselves. To achieve this inspirational goal, whether it's launching our product and business or completing an important military mission or winning the Ryder Cup, we have to be selfless. But when every one of our teammates acts in this selfless way, this is when we achieve so much more than we ever could have done on our own. By connecting the 2014 squad back to their lineage of great European players like Seve Ballesteros and previous generations, he was getting the players to dream. Could they reach the same legendary status in the weeks ahead? He selected three to four key character traits that these great individuals had shown and use them as a behavioural code for the team. This is where his stories brought these images and the characteristics to life. And finally, he took the players forward to a moment in time when they could either look back at their own chapter in the Ryder Cup story with great pride or look back with great regret. These moments to be part of a high-performing team don't come around very often. So we need to do whatever it takes, whatever the team needs us to do. We need to sacrifice that in the coming weeks so that we can look back for years and decades to come with great pride about what we've achieved. I'm sure there have been several occasions over the last six or seven years that they've sat in a pub together and they would definitely look back with great pride of what the class of 2014 achieved and they wouldn't change for a moment the hard work and the sacrifice that they put in to win that trophy. 
For our final insight for today's show, I've chosen a section of Paul's interview where he stresses the importance of not doing it alone. Even for someone as diligent and methodical and meticulous in his planning as Paul, you can never see the full picture. So we need to surround ourselves with objective people and perspectives so that they can challenge us to consider different alternatives and different options so that we can navigate the course ahead of us. As much as stubbornness is a quality that's very important and evident in a lot of very successful people, um, there's got to be a stage when you have to listen to people around you. It's very important, I believe, to have people around you um, that are sounding boards, that you respect. And you're very happy to listen um, to what they have to say uh, and act on their advice. Um, Everybody needs a mentor. Everybody needs a couple of people around them um, who will give them a clear, um, unbiased view of the task in front of them. Um, And that should be listened to. Maybe not always followed, but certainly listened to and considered. And uh, I believe we're all in this world as a team. Um, And trying to do things on your own, no matter how successful you are, is to me impossible. You need a couple of people around you that you know are going to give you unsolicited information and then you consider that and you move forward. I've always felt playing in a, in a golf tournament the caddy plays a huge role. Um, as much as me personally I didn't watch the leaderboards and it was better for me not to do, my caddy did. So if I was coming down with a number of holes to play um, and I wasn't quite sure do I need some birdies on my in the lead here, what do I need to do? I'd ask my caddy to interject and say, okay, we need to push a little bit, take a little bit of risk here because we need another couple of birdies in the last five holes if we're going to get in the playoff or potentially win this tournament. So that's when I would like the caddy to step in. So who's your caddy that can help to step back from the emotion of your game or your business and give you impartial advice and be an impartial sounding board? Maybe it's finding someone that can keep you positive when everything is turning to dust around you. Or maybe it's finding someone that you respect to bring in some critique and some challenge when things are going well. Either way, none of us can do it alone. And ultimately, that's what we're offering you at Sporting Edge. We're going to play the role as your caddy. We'll provide inspirational content for you that will keep you motivated in challenging times but we'll also challenge your thinking and beliefs with some of our innovators and world-class leaders. The way they think, I find incredibly liberating. And they also provide an on-demand resource for you whenever you need fresh ideas to tap into and you're feeling under pressure with your team. We've seen a massive surge in members joining us on our free trial recently, so make sure you do come across and experience our members club for yourself. Just visit sportingedge.com forward slash membership and use the code podcast100 for your first month free. When you join, you'll be able to see Paul's full interview and he has some fascinating insights around how he created a a sort of a dynamic buffet system because he knew that the Scandinavian players wanted to eat early and the Spanish players and the Southern European players maybe wanted to eat a bit later. So having that ability to cater for both sort of preferences was important, but also 
how he kept his meetings really short. I think that's definitely something that we can learn for our businesses when we're constantly on Zoom. But there's other great interviews in there as well with people like Gareth Southgate, Eddie Jones and Shane Warne, as well as all the neuroscientists and communication experts. So you'll definitely be able to build your own winning team after watching those insights. I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode and I hope you're looking forward to the Ryder Cup as much as I am in the weeks ahead. There's been some incredible stories from sport over the last few weeks. The Paralympics has been absolutely sensational. We've had Emma Raducanu, who's an absolute star, winning the US Open. It's a real fairy tale. It's like those two girls were playing in a school's final. There were absolutely no nerves and the standard was incredible. So that bodes really well for the next few years. I really hope that's a duel that we'll see played out many, many times. And if you want to find out a little bit more about my views on Emma's confidence and mindset, then I wrote a couple of articles for The Times and also The Huffington Post. So if you click into my LinkedIn account, you'll see that those links are there. We've also got Ronaldo back from Man United and he'll be box office. And it was a pity that the Indian Test Series was cancelled at the end there uh, with that last Test match. I'm really hoping that can be rescheduled the other side of the IPL in the next few months. But um, yeah, I really hope you're enjoying the sport at the moment. We're moving over from the English summer into the Southern Hemisphere summer. So we're almost about to say goodbye to the sun. But please do uh, take a moment to drop a rating. Our five-star review is something that we're incredibly proud of. So it helps us to be seen in the Apple podcast lists. So please do take a moment to do that. If you want to get in touch, please drop me a note at hello at sportingedge.com. I'd be delighted to take any questions or help you out with any support you need. And until next time, look after your mindset and good luck bringing some of these inspirational lessons from Paul McGinley's Ryder Cup win into your team. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.